Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Hi, John. Uh, Great to be with you. It's been obviously a number of months uh, since we've spoken and gotten caught up. Um, But of course, we've been speaking for years now. And I I do want to remind our viewers, because we don't always say this on TV, but you know, you've been in the investment business since 1983, your own firm since 1993. Um, so obviously that's a lot of experience that we get to hear uh, hear about from, from your perspective. So why don't we kind of just start there in terms of the, the macro view. Um, obviously there's a lot of concern right now in terms of which way the market goes. We've had a huge run so far this year. And now we maybe have some stumbling blocks in terms of that higher interest rate environment or inflation that we might be facing and putting some downward pressure on the market. So kind of top-down perspective, uh, where do you stand these days, John? Well, probably more positive than I've been in a while, Catherine. I mean, notwithstanding the move we've seen in the past year and, and the risk, I, I think we've, we've uh, reset the cycle effectively. I mean, the downturn we saw last year at the beginning of the pandemic, where you saw the market fall 35% in, in less than a month, and the economy was down two quarters in a row, you know, one being the worst since the 1930s, has effectively sort of reset the cycle, much as, as we did in sort of the early uh, 1980s, and again in 1990, and again following the financial crisis. And uh, I think now you've got a few more tailwinds at your back. There's going to be better growth for the next uh, number of years. Uh, certainly the, the monetary stimulus we've seen out there from central banks globally, particularly from the U.S., and on top of that, what we're seeing from the fiscal stimulus in the U.S., which is making this more a U.S.-led global recovery, reminiscent of uh, sort of the 80s and 90s and different from the post-financial crisis, which was led by a massive fiscal stimulus from China, which you know did a lot of spending within their own economy. Uh, that sort of drove the commodities market global a global recovery, uh, but also drove their debt level pretty significantly higher, and they aren't able to probably uh, dominate the recovery this time around, but the U.S. is clearly pulling out all the stops. Uh, you know, they're doing the mass vaccinations there better than anybody. And, you know, I think the economy recovers more quickly with tailwinds, like I say, from monetary stimulus. Fed, Powell, Fed Chair Powell has gone out to pain to say they are going to stay out of the way of markets. I mean, in 2018, as you recall, that market downturned significantly in the fourth quarter because he was talking about normalizing interest rates and all his I don't know whether he's learned his lesson or something else is different, but he is going to pain to the other extreme right now, saying they're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates till you know 1922 or 2022, 2023 probably. You know whether the market believes it or not is another story. And they've even let inflation run a little bit higher for a period of time if they had to just to get it back in place. So I mean, between that massive monetary stimulus and the fiscal stimulus. Uh, you know, we're, we are like resetting for a new cycle, which means it's, a, it's probably a pretty good time to invest, uh, more so in maybe cyclical stocks that have some earnings, uh, uh, economic sensitivity, as opposed to the stocks that have dominated in the past year. And we're going to get your bumps along the way, much you did in coming out of any cycle. We saw that in, in the early 80s, 
you know, in the early 90s, again, into the 2010, you'll get some pullbacks along the way. We might be closer to that now. I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to sort of invest on the basis of the day-to-day -day moves. I think if, if investors ask, is it a good time to generally be invested in equities for the next number of years? I'd say absolutely yes. But on top of that, the alternatives still aren't going to look good for a while. I mean, the 40-year bull market in bonds, Catherine, in my view, is over. Uh, mm -hmm. Interest rates probably stayed low for a while, so the alternatives don't look that attractive. Um, so yeah, they yeah. well-priced stocks yeah, with uh, decent decent dividends, good place to be. Okay, so a lot to go through there for sure. Um, I, I want to you know pick up on a point though that you mentioned, which is really interesting. You know, we think about the market really since the 2008 financial crisis and keeping interest rates lower for longer, but we sometimes forget that. It really was China that um, stimulated their economy that really helped carry the rest of us along with a lack of stimulus from Europe, a fiscal stimulus that is from Europe, the United States and Canada as well. So it's interesting to point out that, you know, maybe now it will in fact be the U.S.'s turn to do just that. And I guess the question will be, will it be even uh, more effective, um, even more beneficial to global growth? But as we think about, and, and, and I love the fact that you're likening it to the, the uh, 1980s and 1990s um, in terms of what that might mean in terms of you know broader economic participation for more people than we've seen over the past 10 years. But having said that, you know when you take a look at the market movements over the past couple of days, I think people have been concerned that the fiscal stimulus out of the United States will come at what cost? How do we get there? And the concern, of course, is that they'll increase taxes. I mean, they've kind of been pretty clear about that. And if that's the case, what does that really mean in terms of corporate spending? And will corporations in the United States can you know, go back to offshoring, um, relocating? What will it mean for individual spending? So where does that fall into that entire dynamic? Yeah, I mean, on the tax side, you, you have to pay the piper at some point effectively. So yeah, I mean, there's probably going to be some tax increases along the way. That's probably you know more of a political consideration in the U.S. as to you know exactly how you fund that. I mean, for now, it's it's really interesting to think about Catherine. I mean, they're effectively what we call you know monetizing the debt. I mean, the the U.S. Federal Reserve is standing there buying up bonds. You know, this quantitative easing that they're buying basically what 120 billion dollars a month. But the U.S. Treasury, if you notice, has been doing auctions this month north of 200 billion. So effectively, the Treasury's selling all their debt, and the Fed is buying it all up, sticking it on their balance sheet. You know that can't go on indefinitely. At some point, you probably depreciate the currency. So you know it's an interesting way to play it. And and you've got all these monetary theorists out there saying that doesn't matter. You you're not creating inflation. You never will again. And that's I don't know if I buy that. It's probably the argument why you'd want to stick a little bit of money in, in gold or you know Bitcoin or whatever, some store value outside just in case. But it's uh, you're right, it's, it's got to be paid for. These debts have to be reckoned with at some point in time. And the debt we've run up in the current crisis globally is, is astronomical. But as everyone says, the cost of servicing it with interest rates near zero is, is manageable for now. But uh, it also means that the global economy and the U.S. government could not absorb a substantial increase in interest rates. So, you know, it, it's not happening to any large degree. I mean, the market, you know, the bond market is telling you it's tightening up a little bit, but let's face it, I mean, we're getting all worked up about U.S. treasuries at 1.5 or 1.6%. I mean, historically, that's nowhere. I mean, historically, when you look at it, 
10-year uh, yields used to be at the nominal growth rate of the economy I and mean, real growth plus inflation, which you call right now, if you get, you know, two and a half percent inflation this year and, you know, 6% real growth, I would say 8%. <laughs> yeah. U.S. Treasuries are not going to 8% anytime soon. I can guarantee you that. So. Do you though, John, it was interesting. I was reading a Goldman note um, this morning, actually, and they were talking about going back to the 1300s, if you can believe it, looking at the impact on inflation of wars versus pandemics and um, that it's very different. Uh, with wars, you have the destruction of, of capital, obviously, and, and a strain on resources, where sadly with pandemics, you have a, a loss of life. And it's the governments that fill in the gaps. And, and that's obviously what we're seeing in terms of you know, the, um, the stimulus checks, et cetera. But wars do lead to inflation, whereas historically it looks like pandemics do not. And it might in fact just be transitory as the US Federal Reserve continues to tell us. Um, do you buy into that? I mean, where do you see the interest rates moving? And you're right, I mean, we're at such low levels and that's uh, you know many strategists commentary, we're at such low levels that we're up by, 50 basis points, 60 basis points, what difference does it really make? It, do you agree with that? Or is there a breaking point in, in your mind in terms of you know, an overheating of the economy? Because that is what people are concerned about. I guess I would agree to it more than I would have thought in the past, especially given some of the robust, it, robust growth we saw a couple of years ago as well and into the late teens. And yet you didn't you know, ignite any inflationary pressure. Because you're right, Catherine, I mean, the longer term impact deflationary pressures are going to remain, which is sort of global outsourcing effectively, uh, and technology. Technology will continue to drive down costs of, of business and transactions and everything else in general, and that flows through more than, you know, the price of, you know, oil or any other copper or any other specific commodity rising, their impact on the economy is not what it used to be. And you're absolutely right, too. I mean, wars were inflationary. I mean, uh, coming out of so the World War II to some degree, uh, certainly coming out of the Vietnam War, that was you know some of the worst inflation you saw. I mean, the oil price went at the same time, so you put the two of them together. But it's also why, as you say, on the pandemic-related, people are sort of talking about you know the Roaring Twenties as opposed to, you know, similar to a century ago. I don't know if I completely buy that, but that was the period post-pandemic. Uh, but it was also post-World War One as well, where you had massive reparations and repayments. So I think mean, there's a lot of factors at play here. I, I think the biggest factors at play for us today going forward are, I think, the impact of technology on costs in general. I mean, that is so massive. And, and it's been demonstrated, Catherine, it goes in, in such a way in the past year. Let's face it, I mean, who would have guessed a year ago that businesses and what we're doing right now would run as smoothly, as efficiently uh, as they have, uh, given the massive shutdown of the economy that we've seen. They, they, I think you have to be impressed. Networks held up, businesses held up, despite the fact that nobody is doing, you know, what they were a year, year and a half ago in terms of how they do business, how they meet people, you know, and fly to places and things like that. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's really got to be, thank technology for that. You know, it, it's true. And, you know, even just being able to do TV interviews like you and I have done over the past 10 years, um, you know, my, my costs are very minimal sitting here. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my light, the camera, et cetera, very, very different. Uh, so, and again, that, that those costs are driven down dramatically to your point because of technology to the point where there are some people, John, uh, you and I know them, some veterans in the fixed income industry who believe that, you know, 
we are in a deflationary world. We will not see, uh, you know, real moves higher in inflation. And that, that matters, you know, we'll talk about, you know, kind of more where you're investing now. Um, that, that matters because, you know, do you still want to own dividend stocks? Will, will you still be rewarded if you do? Because, you know, if rates really rise, your dividend stocks uh, don't appreciate as much. So, and there could even be some risk. So, Taken all together, it sounds as though the backdrop for investing, to your point, from a longer term perspective, is, is certainly positive. Um, you've got the fiscal stimulus, not too, too much fear of inflation. Um, but, but we do have to be a bit tactical, it feels like right now, unless you're really just truly a buy and hold. And, and you do also run a hedge fund, so people should know that you know how to be tactical. Not everybody does. So it's yeah. a whole other skill set, that's for sure. So, so talk to us a little bit about how you're strategizing on a day to day, you know, in terms of your different approaches. Well, you know, right, Catherine, about, you know, the dividends, it would be at risk a little bit, dividend-paying stocks if rates would rise significantly. But you know, I don't see that at all. And I look at, you know, the telecom sector, the banking sector, pipeline, you know, where you got 6 7% dividend yields right now, you know, rates aren't going to rise that much. And, and they have no ability to do this. And you would have, you know, have such a negative impact on the economy, you'd be quickly unwinding that again. So, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the inflation is transitory, as we, as we said. It'll it'll pop up for a while, but I think you know the longer term costs are are still coming down. So that's all a, a positive backdrop for the markets overall. You'd mentioned earlier too, Catherine, about corporations and you know debt and what the you know what they'll do. I find it interesting, particularly in Canada, when you look at the past week, corporations are, are joining in. They become a little bit more bullish. I mean, corporations always hold back on capital spending and other things when the future is uncertain. But what we've talked about is resetting the cycle. I think the future is a little bit more certain. And I mean, just look at in Canada in the past couple of weeks, you know, two weeks in particular, um, Rogers going out basically, you know, $25 billion to buy Shaw. Uh, CP Rail, $25 billion plus to, to buy Kansas City Southern. And, you know, to amalgamate that network for a, a national basis. These companies that wouldn't be, and they're both mostly cash deals. I don't think these companies would be making those sorts of expenditures if, if they were sort of thinking we were late in the cycle, there were higher risks of, of you know, rates. So I think it, it's a good indication that uh, we're sort of in, in, a, in a pretty good place at this point in time. So like I say, it just goes more to the, the idea that, yeah, I think investors, if they don't get caught chasing the wrong names, we can talk about that in picks a little bit, you know, don't get caught up in the greed and the enthusiasm and maybe... Read <laughs> too much yeah. of what you think everybody else is doing, because that's where the risks are, and and you know you can get caught up and and lose a lot of money in a hurry there, on that side, and, and you know that's where I, I'd wave some caution flags. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting to point out those um, those merger deals that took place in Canada because you're right. I mean, I think we were so focused on the actual deal rather than what the deal's telling us, which is you know deals of those size, especially here in Canada, are, are pretty massive. Um, it is a really bullish sign. Do, do you think, just as an aside, do you think that the uh, Roger Shaw deal goes through? I mean, the market's sort of saying right now it's probably only you know, total a 60% probability given where Shaw's price and all that. And you know yourself, I mean, in the telecom sector, the regulators are always trying to get, get into the middle of it. So, I mean, it's a, it's a tough road to hold, but I, I think you know, the consolidation in that sector probably continues and, and there's not a lot of players left. So you can understand why Rogers lined up to want to buy Shaw, create the national network. I mean, some of these assets are disappearing quickly. And it's actually, it, it, interestingly, it's a similar story to CP buying uh, Kansas City. When you look at it, if you're trying to patchwork together sort of a North American network that fits in with, you know, the new NAFTA, 
there weren't many players you could sort of go out there and buy. And this is CP's third kick at the can of trying to do a deal like this. So this one probably has a better chance of success. Yeah, both, both those deals are going to face some regulatory risk. Every deal does. But like I said, what I like about Catherine is the fact okay. that he's neither putting cash out. I always get concerned when companies start doing deals based on stock, which we saw in the tech sector sort of in the late 90s. We saw even in you know the cannabis sector a few years ago when companies, you know, if, if you had a company and you thought your stock was massively overvalued, what would you do? Well, you'd probably use, you probably do a takeover using the stock. And uh, when companies are paying cash, it, to me, it says, no, they just want to do this deal for the, the uh, accretion they can get from it, as opposed to the idea that their stock is, is inflated. So. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that the, the cash is a positive sign for you. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, um, John, let's take a few questions uh, and then we'll get to your um, number one top idea, your hold idea, and then also what you'd be selling today. Sure. Um, this is from Kevin. Um, he's asking, how frothy is the market still? It seems with bond yields and the growth of money moving out of tech, the reopening trade is getting more interest, but there still seems to be an addiction to the freely printed money and at what point does the reckoning come and fundamental support investment decisions? Does he see a large correction coming? Generally, I'm an optimist, but just wondering what the tea leaves are saying. I'm a novice investor and learn a lot from these interviews. Um, lot, a, lot of, a lot there in that question. What, what do we well, think? Well, it's an interesting question too, because I, I absolutely think that this is very similar to sort of coming out of the, the tech bubble in, in 1999, 2000, what happened afterwards. I think because of the growth of what we call the passive money that's gone into indexes, in particular in the past couple of years, you've seen the values, you know, the Amazons, the Apples, the Microsoft, a lot of money is just flooded into those names, driven up the valuations. And I think there's either risk that if money moves elsewhere, these things are going to turn down. They are the biggest part of the market right now. I mean, the FANG stocks alone are about 25% of the index in the US. So if they start to roll over, your indices can come down. But the average stock, other areas, you know, that are less invested in can do well. And that's what you saw in sort of 2001, Gather, yeah, and when you saw the market turning down, I mean, the big tech stocks, which were such a big part of the industry, remember Nortel was like 35% of the TSX. It ended up dropping 80%. Well, that alone is gonna take the market down, you know, 30% right there. But a lot of, you know, the, the metals, the energy, the, the industrials, they can drop nearly as much. I think you're getting to that similar stage here. There's a lot of fairly valued pockets of the market that I think could easily live through a downturn of the averages. So maybe it's, a, it's probably a better time for stock selection as opposed to maybe index investing. And I think there are those areas that are frothy and then they will roll over. And some of them already have. I mean, look at it. You know, the, the hot stocks of the past year, I mean, you know, Tesla, and, and we could talk about that one forever, but it's actually down about 25% from its peak. You know, Zoom is down over 40% from its peak. I mean, I don't even get me started on GameStop. I mean, <laughs> where, you know, some of these things where there's no valuation support at all, but you know, that those pockets can, you know, can collapse very quickly. And I think that's where the danger is because I mean, investors get caught up and you're, you're sort of the last guy in, and then you suddenly turn around and boy, you're, you know, you're down 40%. You know, that's that's the sort of things I remember coming out of 2008 where you know people come to you and said you know I've had to change my whole retirement plans and everything else because I'm suddenly down 40 or 45 percent 
you don't want to be taking those risks. And I think in a lot of parts of the market, you're not, but in some areas that have done very well, you have to watch out. So your, your, your um, call that came in or question about yeah. coffee, yeah, there actually are areas of froth, but I don't think it's in the entire market. Right. And, and just to pick up on that, it seems as though we really have been in a stock pickers market for a, a solid year, maybe year and a half or so, um, you know, versus just sometimes it's great to own the ETFs that represent, you know, sectors or subsectors, but um, but there are some real opportunities if you own some certain stocks. Um, but John, I want to I do want to pick up on one aspect that you that you brought up that that I think about actually almost every day because, you know, I own some of these stocks. Um, which is, you know, when you look at the tech companies of the 2000 era and the tech boom and bust, I mean, if you didn't get out of some of those names, they were down to your point, 50, 60, 70% for 10 years yeah. and or longer. Do you, but everybody says maybe it's different this time with some of the big bellwethers like a Facebook, a Google and Amazon and Apple. Those I think are almost um, those staple core tech names in so many people's portfolios. What kind of risk do you see in any of those names or, or not? Can we actually own these as like you would own consumer staple companies 30 years ago? Well, I, I see a little more of your latter point there, less risk because I, I think you know there's a different dynamic going on there with the consolidation to the larger players. I mean, we're all moving to fewer platforms. I mean, you know, basically you're either Android or iOS on the you know wireless devices on, on, on networks and all of that. So you're consolidating, I mean, Microsoft, that are really dominating the cloud, or Microsoft, Amazon, uh, effectively together, you know, Alphabet to really dominating the cloud completely. So you got fewer players, and they're sort of gobbling up all, all, all the smaller guys along the way. So I, and they're generating cash too, which is different than it was in the nineties. Remember, you remember that? I mean, they weren't fundamentally sound companies back then. They weren't generating cash. They were, you know, they had eyeballs and things like that. So I, I think it's it's a different story from that point of view. But Catherine. The point you make that I think is really important to pay attention to is that, you know, the difference between a good uh, company and a good stock, and, and sometimes these things can get well ahead of themselves. And, and you're right. I mean, Microsoft peaked in, in 2000, and it took basically almost 15 years for it to get back to that price. And it's not like the business class. You look at Microsoft between 2000 and 2015, I mean, they grew very well, you know, it was, it's not like the industry fell apart, but stocks get well ahead of their valuations. And I think when you look at a, you know, a, a Zoom or a Peloton or, or a Tesla or, or, you know, a lot of those, those similar kinds of companies, yeah, you know, I think they're well ahead of fundamentals and it could take years to grow into those. And, and we get reminded of this all the time. I mean, you only have to go back about two and a half years to, you know, this is a big run in the pot stocks and all of that when everybody loved them and they were working out so well to realize, hey, you know, that, that can end in the heartbeat. And once, you know, this flood of new money disappears, you know, they, then valuations have to support them. And if valuations don't support them, you know, forget about it. So I, I think those are important things investors always have to be thinking about these good companies with good solid stories at reasonable prices. And, I think the big tech companies, you know, to the degree are. I mean, 30 times earnings for Apple, Microsoft, yeah, that's certainly rich. It's going to take a little while to grow into that. Uh, but, you know, they're generating lots of cash and uh, will continue to dominate those industries. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and Microsoft is, was certainly top of mind. I mean, my goodness, it did nothing for so long as a stock, but the company was, was great or fine. So, 
uh, you know, it's you, you always have to know what you you're paying for and, and be okay with it and, and really believe in the, in the growth rate. Uh, and also, of course, if there's going to be money behind it supporting the stock price, I mean, money flow matters. Um, John, let, let's take another question. This is from um, it's from Bob. Uh, could you ask John about CVS and um, WEF? Um, you know, in terms of CVS, I, I, I like the pharmaceutical retailing area because they're almost becoming a, a play on healthcare effectively, you know, because mm -hmm. what they're doing within shopping, let's face it, right up here, I mean, you know, that's why I like Loblaws is, is what they've done with Shopper's Drug Mart the past year. I mean, it's basically you go in there now and it's not, you're just not going in there buying supplies. I mean, you know, you're getting your vaccines there, you're using so much else. And I think, you know, as retailers are positioned a little bit more, so whether it's Walgreens or CVSs or whatever, the, um, you know, I think they're very positioned well in the retailing world for some continued growth at the right multiple. So I, you know, I'm comfortable with it. It's not the, the top name I'd be going after. Healthcare is a, a tough field sometimes as well because of regulation, but it's certainly got demographics on its side and, they, and it should get continued growth there, so. Okay, and, and sorry, just to pick up on that, um, Loblaws you like because of what they're doing with shoppers. You just think there's gonna be some nice synergies and it's a go-to destination almost? Yeah, I like what they've done there. Absolutely, I just think you know that that uh, that acquisition made a lot of sense for them. It fits in very well. You can do the cross selling, and I just think you know in the retailing world, I think you know that healthcare is going through the pharmaceutical sector, and it's just uh, you know pharmaceutical industry, and, and on the retailing side, yeah, that's becoming more of a go-to for you know for many people. So. Mm. Okay, um, let's take a question from Martin Calgary. He goes, uh, says, hello, Catherine, could you please ask John about Magna? Does he think that supply chain issues will create a headwind and should I take some profit? Yeah, I, you know, you can take profit in the short term a little bit, maybe because you're right, the, the first quarter is going to be a little soft for these guys just because of, uh, you know, the chip shortage and that hit the auto industry harder than it did anybody. But I, I wouldn't want to get too cute on that one, you know, because I like the parts manufacturers and I like the auto company that, you know, I think a lot of growth going forward and the parts manufacturers are very well positioned, you know, particularly names like, you know, Magna up here and uh, Martin Rea in terms of the lightweight in the vehicles. And they're also very well positioned for the movement into EV, into electronic vehicles as well. Um, and they can, you know, shift some of their manufacturing around, they're generating cash and evaluations. We're talking about companies trading at three to four times operating cash, so nine to 10 times earnings. I mean, you can do that in an industry where you still got some growth and cyclicality. I, you know, I, I think it, it's good. So yeah, we own Magna and yeah, it's had a pretty healthy run and you sort of get tempted to take some profits. Uh, maybe we shave position back a little bit, but I'm, I'm leaving the position on and keeping it for long term and a few of those names fitting as you know my best of uh, you know the maybe the old garp growth at a reasonable price kind of uh, parameter and, and i think the auto stocks in general and the parts companies fit into that okay that and there's also well. there's also a question of martin rea is that one that you own or would look to own yeah that's probably even a bigger position than they did it's corrected a fair bit recently again they're going to uh, struggle a little in this, this first quarter because of the chip shortage again these guys are big into the lightweight in the vehicles aluminum parts uh i can see them positioning more of the electronic electric vehicles as well and the evaluation is, is you know exceptionally cheap like i say about hmm. two times operating cash flow and uh you know nine to ten times earnings so it's uh it's pretty attractive Interesting. Okay. Um, and Darren is asking um, if, uh, if you think 
deglobalization will occur and how large will the effect be on inflation and corporate profits? This is something, you know, we think about deglobalization. That was really more under a, a Trump presidency. Um, yeah. At the same time, though, as well, we are hearing buy America from President Biden. So we're hoping it's going to be by North America. Um, but what are your thoughts these days on deglobalization? It is, you know what it is, it, it sort of struck, you had this growth curve of globalization since the early 1980s, and you can just see it. And, what, and when you look at now global trade in the past couple of years, you're right, whether it was a prior administration in the U.S. or some other, you know, sort of the nationalistic views in some administrations are, are causing, you know, the, the problems with China and the U.S. and other things, you know, causing some maybe hiccups in this. But I, I still think the whole idea of the reasons for globalization make so much sense. I mean, let's face it, it it's the old economic theory of, of how do you grow the entire pie at the greatest rate is if everybody focuses on the thing where they have the best competitive advantage. And that's what globalization gives you. It gives you manufacturing in the right countries. It gives you research and development in the countries that are, you know, can do these things most effectively. So, it's hard for me to believe that globalization is, is going to start to reverse. Maybe the growth of it slows down a little because you've got some, you know, more nationalistic governments in a few places. We saw it in, in the U.S. We've seen it, you know, certainly in, in China more recently and uh, even in some European economies, you know, with, with obviously with Brexit and other things, they're all closing the doors a little bit more. And I think it's been amplified a little bit in the pandemic just because of the vaccine issue. I, I mean, that's probably even brought it to the forefront is more of a problem because everybody sort of got the vaccine hoarding a little bit. You know, we're not going to distribute it until we, you know, treated our own population first. So, so it, but in the end, the reasons for globalization, I think, remain in place. The trend may just not be the same pace it was in the 80s and 90s and, and you know, past couple of decades. Do you see the risk um, in terms of some of the ge geopolitical tensions as of the past couple of days uh, surrounding China with the uh, UK, US, Canada imposing sanctions on Chinese officials because of human rights abuses. I mean, how does that, how do you think about that? Well, economics are clashing with politics a little on that basis, I would say, Catherine, because certainly, I mean, the growth of the Chinese uh, economy and it's still in, you know, a, a communist regime there effectively, even though that capitalistic sort of tendencies. It, it clashes with what you see, you know, in the other largest economies of the world. So it, it's there's a lot of things to be smoothed out there, and, and globalization and, and uh, sharing of technology uh, is probably again highlighting those differences. So you know, those problems or issues aren't going to go away. I think they're decades going forward, but I don't think they're going to undermine global growth in general because in the end, all these countries sort of have the same objective. I mean. <laughs> They want full employment. They want to grow their economy. They want the, the, the people to do well. They want the companies to do well. I mean, so they're trying to achieve the same end. So there are sort of cross purposes. You know, it, it, it's not a, an either or sort of a zero sum game where we only we gain only if you lose kind of thing, which was that was maybe a little was painted uh, more so in the last U.S. administration. But uh, I don't think that's a view that's necessarily the right global view going forward. Mm -hmm. um, do you own any of the tech, uh, Chinese tech companies? I'm just curious. They, they've been under a little bit of pressure rebounding today. You know, from a longer term perspective, do, do you like them? I don't have them in the portfolio, Catherine. I guess it, it's hard for me to know as much about them. I mean, 
you know, in, in the tech world, I, I can know more about what Amazon, Microsoft, I use their products, I know them more effectively, I know what their markets are, the regulation, and I even understand the accounting. I don't as much on, on the Chinese companies. So, you know, I'm happy to invest in companies that can benefit from the growth of China. We certainly got other commodity producers and others. And, uh, but, you know, for the, the other players, it's, uh, it's a little bit different. So I, I don't, I, I, answer your question, no, I don't have any direct investments in Alibaba or Tencent or any of those, those players mm -hmm. directly right now. And, and speaking of tech, we've got a question um, from Yannick on BlackBerry. What's your view on BlackBerry right now? We sold it. I mean, I, I like the story. I think John Chin has done an amazing job. Only you had that meme kind of run up earlier in the year. You know, we got lucky. We sold the thing in the low 20s, but I was shaking my head. I mean, it was just a ridiculous run up in some of these names based on obviously, you know, the Reddit sort of uh, chatter that, that drove up the names of the company that were the most shorted and, and took some valuations that were just not sustainable. So, I mean, their earnings are coming out, I think, uh, next week. So we'll be interested to see. I like, like I say, what John Chen has done is, is, is a great turnaround there. But uh, we got out, and I probably wouldn't be a buyer again unless I saw a price sort of maybe down, you know, the $7, $8 US range or something like that. Like, I still think about what they do with QNX, what they're going to do in a cybersecurity is decent growth. But, again, it, it's what are you willing to pay for that? And when it traded north of $20, yeah. that was you know, more than enough for me. Right. Uh, we've got another question here. A um, couple, couple of items in this question uh, and it is from John. Um, he's asking, what are Mr. Zechner's thoughts on the likelihood of the Federal Reserve implementing some sort of yield curve control despite their insistence otherwise? He's also curious to know what he thinks would happen to the various reflationary, deflationary sectors of so financials tech in particular, which thrive on higher and lower long-term yields respectively, if in fact the Fed does extend the maturity of their asset purchases, does the market ignore or look through the distortion of the bond market or does it accept the distorted yields and therefore, and therefore inflation expectations and the repricing of these sectors accordingly? Well, I think the reality for the Fed is they can't really control the entire yield curve, much as they like to say they can. I mean, they, they will get swamped by the amount of, you know, bond buying, they would ultimately have to do to support that. It just, you know, it can't be done. It's just, you know, it's like, you remember the old new issues, I mean, that all, all that, how the, the shorts would wake up, but they were going to short into this, but eventually, you know, you're, they can't hold up those walls on their own. What can, what the Fed can do is control the short end of the curve. And that's what they're doing. They're keeping your short rate effectively zero. You know, markets are going to determine the longer end of the curve. And that's why you're seeing, you know, the treasury yield go a little bit higher. Compared to who that impacts, the banks, uh, it, it's great for them, which is why you've seen the financials rally. And I think the financials will rally more. I think the financial stocks here and in the U.S. are, are undervalued. Uh, and they're going to benefit from the yield curve steepening a little bit. Because, as you know, they tend to borrow short and long. Uh, I think as the economy starts to recover, you realize what the bank's balance sheet is, what they've mostly been doing for the past couple of years because they haven't had much ability to grow or increase their lending. They've been putting the money back into treasuries. And again, so I, I think they'll start to stop, they'll stop doing that, which is again, you lose one more buyer for bonds, but then they'll start to loan money out again. And uh, which is, again, we've talked about these mergers you saw in the past week. I mean, both of them they, uh, were done with obviously massive uh, loan packages from central bank, you know, from the charter banks. 
So I think more of that will come in and that will benefit uh, their growth going forward. So yeah, we've added to the financial stocks in both Canada and the US recently. I like them and they position well from recovering economy, uh, probably over provided for low losses from the downturn last year. And the fact that there was fit tracking with so many programs out to sort of uh, for the individuals in both countries that you haven't had, you know, the bankruptcy, the downturns that you normally would have. So the bank, you know, set up for low losses, but they haven't really realized these low losses yet. So maybe they take some of that money that they reserved, they take it back into earnings at some point too. Those are all tailwinds for, you know, the, the banks going forward. So I, I like the financials on that basis. Hmm. So I mean, uh, yeah. Um, last question here, and it does pick up on what you're talking about in terms of the mergers. Um, it's from David in North Bay. He's saying, has the pandemic escalated more mergers than during normal economic times? Uh, they were restricting in some industries. I mean, I, I'd say most companies probably held back on mergers for a while. I mean, for a lot of companies, you know, that was a touchy feeling kind of thing where they had to get on an airplane and go and see their businesses and all of that. I don't think they were, you know, Sort of set up to negotiate deals over Zoom. So I mean that's that slowed it down a little bit. And clearly, you know, some were restricted from doing it. You know, the regulated industries, particularly financials, wouldn't have been able to go out and do acquisitions. I think those are loosening up, which is why you're starting to see some deal flow start to happen again right now. So uh, yeah, I think it, it's been impacted negatively, and but that I say that that should start to change. Mm -hmm. um, Dave is also asking a question about the auto sector, which was, is going to lead into your top pick for new money today. Um, he is asking your thoughts on the emerging electric vehicle market, and in particular, Volkswagen versus Tesla. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously all the companies are now talking about the idea that, you know, by 2030 or whatever, you know, a, a bulk of their production is going to be electrical vehicles. I mean, I think these timelines sometimes move a little bit slower than they expect, but you know, that's, that's where we're going. I mean, there seems no doubt about it, you know, from obviously from an environmental point of view, and but that's where all the money is going into as well in terms of production going forward and everything else. The infrastructure has to be set up a little bit more, but, uh, you know, obviously the battery power is improving. So you look at the, the majors and uh, you're right, Volkswagen, I mean, they have a brand, they also have auto production experience. So I think these guys can all migrate to electrical vehicles very effectively. And that is going to be a headwind for Tesla. Uh, yeah. Everyone views as sort of owning this industry. And I think, you know, they're not going to own this industry. They may dominate for a while, and uh, but they're going to be facing a lot more competition. And they're not going to have the benefits of all the credits they've been receiving. I mean, let's face it, on a pure profit basis, they weren't getting the credits back they wouldn't even be profitable for the past couple of years. So that brings us to your top pick, John, uh, uh, in terms of um, the, the automotive sector. Um, your top pick is? Uh, general, I would think General Motors. Uh, and I just think it's, like I say, it's, it's sort of a simple thesis. I mean, General Motors with a 70 billion market cap and, you know, Tesla had, you know, been as high as 800 billion, you know, so more than 10 times the value. And yet, you know, GM probably make what, six to eight times as many automobiles in a year. So, I mean, that alone sort of sticks out, but I think GM, when I look at the model, you know, Hummer or other things are going to bring out, they will be a presence in, in the EV market. They can use the cash flow for an existing sort of combustion vehicle to, to fund some of that. They have, you know, they have the ability and proven ability in the past to, 
to be manufactured. They have the brand name. So I think on the valuation basis, yeah, you, you talk about that at you know 10 or 12 times earnings and five times operating cash flow versus you know the this really huge valuation of a Tesla. I think yeah, these things sticks out. I mean, in the hedge fund, if I, if I had more guts, I'd probably you know maybe short one and go long the other. But you know, shorting individual stocks is, is just uh, at your own risk kind of thing lately. I just you know haven't been doing it. It's just uh, you know you, you can end up wearing those positions in a very ugly way. But I think just getting long GM on the other side is to me a, a very safe bet and probably a, a good area of growing valuation is cheap and i think they'll position themselves well in a growth industry so so john it's interesting so new money to work you can for for our viewers um put it into gm the the you know valuation it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of how important valuation is uh, as it relates to stock picking um you think it's attractive obviously but you're also really kind of taking a look at it in the EV market and, and being a, a very fair or fierce competitor to Tesla, which is which is highly debated. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, uh, the, the purists in the industry, you listen to, the, you know, the Kathy Woods or something like that, and they'll talk about Tesla and, and a whole different genre. But I mean, then they're talking about, you know, the battery power, what they're doing on SpaceX and other things like that. I think, yeah, as a technology company, I'll give them credit, Tesla probably has more, much more going for it, but in the pure area of auto production and uh, you know, ability to migrate over to uh, electrical vehicles, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have a problem going with a company that's been a proven in that industry for over a hundred years <laughs> as, <laughs> uh, versus a company that you know has been around for you know less than two decades kind of thing. So yeah, they, you know, Tesla is certainly winning that in, in, in the near term, but I think these other companies can't be ignored in the market is pricing as if you know Tesla will basically own this industry. And I, I don't I don't believe that will be true. Well and it's important to pick up and I think it, it doesn't get talked to about much. Um, but your point about Tesla's profitability, if they didn't get the credits, let's describe what those credits are. Well, just the, the rebates for anybody who buys an electric vehicle. I mean, that will probably go across and you're still gonna see it for, you know, carbon credits for other things, just from an environmental point of view, but that won't be limited just to Tesla. And as, as the electrical vehicle market grows, I mean, these subsidies, will not be able to keep pace to the same degree. It's, it's different when you're you know, producing 100 or 200,000 vehicles a year that those credits in place from the point of view of, of the governments that have to finance those. You know, you started to get, you know, four, five, six million vehicles a year on that same basis. I think they have to look a little more closely at the cost. So yeah, ultimately, these companies have to be able to justify the production and the cost and everything else on a standalone basis without credits. Mm -hmm. Right, the subsidization of some of these industries, you know, when we get kind of all thinking about the, um, the, the future and the prospects, we kind of forget some of these areas are, su are subsidized and, and if there's going to be more units uh, that have to be subsidized, at, at what point can't the government fund that? Fair? Yeah, is that fair? The question is how much money they're willing to do, especially if, you know, they are, you know, running profitable operations. I mean, it's sort of, you know, you look at it, it's going to be silly at some point to provide those subsidies. You know, unless it's directly to the consumer somehow to uh, the companies that are generating profits and have you know market caps of a trillion dollars so yeah the balance here <laughs> so, yeah, yeah exactly yeah uh let's uh, talk about some areas that um that you're really comfortable to hold right now 
I think the, the the dividend players, I mean, there's companies that are growing that are reasonable valuations that just pay out a good yield. So whether, and I, I look at the telecom sector where the, you know, the yields are probably 6% plus, some of the pipeline companies, uh, you know, seven, 8% dividend yields, the financials, 5% plus dividend yields, valuations are reasonable. So you know, it's just an area where you say it's, it, you're going to get a better return than you're going to get in certainly uh, from cash or you know, you're not going to get in the bond market anymore. So I think you have to be, have things like this as a ballast in your portfolio. You've you got to have some area, you know, some people will want some growth and higher growth companies and technology and other like that, but you can't run a portfolio invested hundred percent on that basis. And if bonds don't look attractive, where does the money go? I think a good spot is, is the areas like these big dividend payers, especially ones that can grow the dividend a little bit, the valuations are there. And uh, like they've just been out of favor because everybody's been chasing sort of high growth and the stuff that they're really expecting to run and technology and else. And these things have uh, suffered by neglect a little bit to some degree. I mean, the energy sector is like that too. Some of these are, are good dividend paying. The pipelines fit in with that a little bit more. And I, I liken those things a little almost to the, uh, you know, the tobacco stocks of the 1980s and 90s. I mean, these companies were effectively ignored. They weren't growing anymore. They were uh, obviously smoking was declining. So there was not much growth in the industry. Uh, and yet you look at, you know, the Philip Morris's and all of that of those decades, they did exceptionally well. They generated a lot of cash. They paid a decent, decent dividend. The dividends grew and the stocks ended up doing very well. You know, I, I see a lot of similarities in certainly the, the energy sector today in, in that genre. I mean, you can get some big, decent dividend players and, uh, and at decent valuations. Hmm. And, and John, I'm curious, did you step in at all into some of the um, REITs in Canada? I, I'm an optimist by nature, that is for sure. Uh, and so I actually stepped into um, Smart Centers as well as Automotive Properties REIT when I think I, I'm probably getting a, an, an almost a 9% yield. So, I mean, I was buying when you know during this pandemic when, when it was obviously so out of favor in terms of the reopening trade. Um, now they're kind of, have they been catching a, a nice bid? Did you step into any of those areas? Yeah, we got into a few of them, not in the, the same areas there. I actually stepped into some of the uh, nursing homes and the healthcare, you know, Chartwell, Sienna, because last year they just got absolutely decimated. They were, you know, they were kicking out at a 10, 8 to 10% uh, yields and trading at decent valuations as well. So there's a few names like that. Again, I've reduced the, the positions a little bit more. But I think you're right. The REITs, there are areas that are still going to generate cash. I mean, you talk about smart centers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, the, 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 the big box mall is, is big box retailers are still going to do well in this environment, probably better than you know, some of the other malls. You know, the, the risks are, are, are the office piece, I think. You know, because I, I think office space is, is, is going, is suffering a contraction that I don't think necessarily is going to recover in a hurry. So I think you have to be a little bit more careful there. So again, just you, know, you have to get the right name. So it's not an overall just invested REIT, but there's some things to kick out as, as decent valuation. And then you get some, again, like you, you get some yield at the same time, which is something I, you want to get off the portfolio. You get a portfolio, even if it stands still, you know, and you don't do any, you can buy an Enbridge right now or something. If, if the stock doesn't go up or down, you're going to kick out a 7% dividend yield, which is a lot better than you're going to do in you know, cash or filling the bonds or anything else. It's not the worst. If, if that's your worst case scenario, sort of a bad case, you know, that's not so bad. And it gives you a little bit of downside protection too, as long as you know, they're not cutting dividends. Yeah. 
absolutely. Um, and, and it is always interesting to take a look at some of those, you know, really just stable dividend payers. They're, you know, they might be boring, or as we still say on, on Wall Street, look at, you know, just because it's not sexy doesn't mean it's not a great stock to own. Yeah. So uh, I, I had friends whose grandmothers, you know, lived on their Philip Morris dividends. Oh, yeah. No, it's it, 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 the investing world in general. Like you can sort of sort of be part of, you know, the, you know, the, the Reddit crowd or something like that and try to, you know, chase these, uh, you know, the, the hot names. And I, you know, when it works, great. But in the end, valuations do matter, Catherine. You know, we've sort of seen it. You know, things get caught up in, in sort of all sort of, and we talked about the pot stocks earlier, things like that. You know, they get caught up in, in sort of a, a rage of enthusiasm. But in the end, fundamentals are what's going to drive these companies. And, and you know, in the end, effectively, you're buying a stock, you're buying a piece of a business. And you have to be, a, you know, as a business, would you buy that business at that price? And if the answer is no, then you got to question a little as to why you're buying that stock. And if you're not getting any sort of yield or other return on it, is, is you know, the growth going to justify that valuation at some point down the road? It has to be able to, even, even in a lower zero interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. and, and so that brings us to, what would you be selling here? Well, you know what? I I would not be playing any what I call them the meme stocks. You know, the uh, into the the Robin Hood stocks. You know, the whatever you want to call it. You know, GameStop. I mean, uh, yes, it went trading at one hundred and eighty, hundred, two hundred dollars today. Hey, it did go up to five hundred dollars at a point. You know, in my mind, what's it worth? You know, maybe twenty, you know, thirty dollars or something like that. I, I just wouldn't be chasing those kinds of names. I talked about, you know, getting out of BlackBerry recently because it just, you know, it, it's come off more than 50% now from the peak that it got to. I just, you know, those things can turn down in a hurry. And I think there's lots of areas of the market right now that to me have that same sort of vibe. They've, they've lived on this you know, bullish view going forward of zero interest rates and they squeeze some shorts out and they're taking these valuations. But, you know, AMC theaters, others like that, you know, they, they, they were part of, like I say, the, you know, these Robin Hood trades where I think they effectively went out and tried to find out what's the most shorted stock and, you know, use the power of the internet, which was an interesting way to do it. And the, you know, the individual, the old thing of the individual investor didn't have much power before because nobody could assimilate them in a, in a large way. Uh, and Robin Hood and, and, and the Reddit sort of turn that around, if you can get them all moving in the same direction at the same time, they're a pretty powerful force. And it just uh, squeezed the life out of some of the short positions, but that's not an ongoing thing. And, and if, if anyone got caught up in that, I would sort of, you know, if you're down on it, I would just take the money and run whether you've made money or lost money on it. Because I just say, you know, ultimately I don't see the valuation supporting a lot of those names right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John, just to pick up on the Reddit investor, the retail Robinhood investor, um, over the past couple of days, there's almost been a, a bit of a question mark in terms of if their interest is subsiding a little bit in the market and therefore, you know, that money flow won't necessarily be there um, to continue to move the market higher. I mean, you know, people have to understand that it's always been the institutions really that have moved markets, but, but the Reddit investor maybe changed that dynamic a little bit. So if that money flow is not there, um, a, do you think about that? And the other question, though, is because of the power, to your point, about the individual investor being able to come together with ideas on the internet, causing a short squeeze in some of these names, like a GameStop, 
Um, do you, is that one of the reasons why I, I heard you earlier say, you know, you're kind of careful on, on the shorts. Do you, do you think that more hedge funds are going to be, my goodness, uh, a little bit more careful in terms of shorting stocks because of that? And if that's the case, doesn't that almost give itself or lend itself to being, you know, there's going to be more of a natural bid higher to the market. I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying these are dynamics of money flows that you have to think about. Yeah, no, there's a lot there to unpack, Catherine. But in, in terms of the, uh, the, the latter points on the, you know, the hedge funds and short positions, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't short individual stocks in here right now. It is too dangerous, just especially if, if they're heavily shorted means because it is, you know, we saw and there were a few hedge funds that blew up on that, you know, massive hedge funds that needed bailouts uh, because they, they, they reversed positions, even if they went to valuations that are unsustainably high. Like you can't get in the way of that. So in, in the hedge fund that I run, which is like a, a, a long short fund, the only thing I would short is is indices, like, you know, the S&P 500 or, or the Russell 2000 or the Triple Qs or something like that to so I, I'm long maybe value or a particular area, then I get short these things to protect it a little bit in case of the downturn. So, but uh, yeah, I think you might see a squeeze overall in the hedge fund industry because of that. But on the individual investor side, you know, that, that is a different story. It's, uh, and what's, it was interesting, I, I was paying attention to see these last stimulus checks that came out, you know, did that sort of go back and you get a little run on the market on that basis or not? But I, I think, the issue there is, is last year when the stimulus checks came out, people didn't have too much else they could do. I mean, they were sort of locked at home. Every businesses were closed down. They couldn't travel. So there was nothing really to do with the checks besides invest in the market. And there wasn't even sporting events, so they couldn't bet on sports and other things like that. I think this time around, things are starting to open up a little bit more. And I think you got to believe going forward that that'll continue. So, you know, maybe they can start to take a vacation again or, or you know, spend elsewhere or, you know, go to a ball game or, or go to a restaurant or whatever. And I think it, they'll do that necessarily as opposed to necessarily sort of putting the money into the stock market. So, you know, I, I think it was a, a bit of a one-time occurrence. You're not, you won't necessarily see the same thing. I think the individual player is, is consolidated and they use the internet to their advantage and then good, you know, that's great. I mean, the, the individual investor lots of times got the short end of the stick. Uh, but so much of that has changed. I mean, that's, Catherine, that, that change started back with Ray Q years ago, where you know, suddenly the, you know, the institutions like us used to have such an advantage because, you know, managers would come and visit you before earnings came out and you get the wink, wink, nod, nod, and, and things like that. We don't have that advantage anymore. Everybody gets on the same conference calls and webcasts and all that. You get all the information at the same time. That's good. You want a level playing field for everybody. And then, you know, that's better for the industry overall. And I think that's a trend that's, you know, not, not going to change. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's doing your homework um, with, with the information that everybody has access to. Yeah. Um, John, you also though say that you would be selling SPACs. Interesting to note today that WeWork announced they're going to be going public through a SPAC. Um, what, what do you tell people who are trying to understand what a SPAC is? And by the way, I used to sell them on the institutional desk when I was at Deutsche Bank, when they kind of first came out, these blank check companies or special yeah. purpose acquisition companies, um, they've gone through a, a massive change and they are more popular now than they ever were. What, what do we need to know about them? Well, I think you need to know 
what, where are they going to be ultimately investing in? But the problem I had with them is, is you know, you price a SPAC at $10, they ultimately price at 10 and it starts to immediately trade 11 12 13 $14 because they're going to invest it in, in space or they're going to invest in electric vehicles or, or whatever. And I thought, yeah, companies, you know, I give you $100. It's not, what's it worth? It's worth $100. I mean, maybe you'll spend it in proper place and increase the investment and all of that. Why should anybody pay that amount for it today before they even know what's invested in? And, you know, the SPACs, yeah, if they don't spend the money at some point, they'll give you back that $100, you know, three years from now or something like that. But in the meantime, why should it get a premium? I, and I that sort of reminds me of sort of the, the late 90s with the tech stocks and all of that, where you used to sort of have multiples of, you know, a company with, say, they're going to put a billion dollars of fiber in the ground and suddenly has a market valuation of $2 billion. Well, why? Mm -hmm. I mean, you haven't even put the fiber in the ground yet. So valuing something at a huge premium to what it actually is today just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Buying growth is a different story, but, and that, that's the facts have sort of typified that really. Now, having said that, I know this, back valuations have, have collapsed a lot or come back a lot just in the past few weeks alone, you know, since that sort of downturn in late February. So I think you're already starting taking some of the frost out of that sector. So mm -hmm. I, I guess people, though, when they've given them a premium, they're just betting on that company management making and having access to some great idea and some great company. Exactly. I they sort of assume, hey, I think they're going to take this money and invest it and it's going to go up, you know, 20 or 30 percent or whatever. But it, like I say, I, I'd sort of like to see, you know, from my point of view, a skeptic, I'd rather see what are you buying, you know, can let me evaluate that, maybe make too much, wanting too much control in this. But the idea that you suddenly value that today at that higher level seems to be a little bit premature and, and risky. Mm -hmm. All right, um, John, I'm going to throw in the one last question. It's my question. Um, did you buy or have you bought into the um, digital asset space, cryptocurrencies, any of the funds that are now available? Um, you know, full disclosure is, is what I'm trying to do here. And, and that's why I bring up stocks I own. Um, I did buy that QBTC fund, uh, the closed end fund by 3IQ. So um, is that, is, are you putting any of that in your clients' portfolios or institutional portfolios? Uh, no, I haven't, Catherine, not at this point. I mean, I pay a lot of attention to it. I mean, crypto is, is a whole different world to get to the open up. And, and you know, I understand why blockchain technology is important and, and why it works. And, and you know, the, obviously, energy consumption is, is, is a whole different story there to talk about. But the idea that you're using Bitcoin generally or any other crypto on a more uh, sort of broader basis, I just think needs a little bit more support from either financial institutions or sort of other, you know, major retailers, something like that to, to give it more of a background. But you know, the, the believers in this really believe it and the uh, valuations, yeah, they, they're excessive right now. I, I've never good, been a good momentum player. So no, I'm not there right now. I don't, I, and I wouldn't even profess to, you know, fully understand what the valuation should be. I don't necessarily see it as a store of value, but some people can see it. I see the need for a digital currency and, and the logic of the digital currency. And mm -hmm. uh, but you've got to have some safeguards behind it. Uh, you know, would you go out and make a purchase, a large purchase, using uh, a cryptocurrency when you didn't know for sure, you know, who, who was behind it or, or your ability to sort of recover 
costs or even the, uh, the volatility at the store of value. I mean, if you're going to buy something, you want, want to buy a, an item with you know, a big purchase of, of $10,000, are you going to use a crypto that you know, suddenly might be worth 20% less in two days when you go to purchase this item, which is still priced the same way? So, yeah, it, it's just like I say, there's enough <laughs> balls in the air and risk right now that uh, I'm okay with that, that one will have to just pass me by. Yeah, I hear, I hear you. I think sometimes, you know, when you when we invest, um, you kind of just have to know what you really know and, and can focus on and, and what you're good at um, yeah, and, for the majority and, and, of your portfolio. You know, Warren Buffett for years, maybe sort of extreme too far. He didn't invest in technology because he didn't really understand it. Well, I mean, you know, maybe that's taking it too far. You know, he, he stuck to his, his Coca-Colas and uh, McDonald's and things like that. But at a point, yeah, I mean, you got to try to understand and learn about it. But I think cryptos is a bit more of a, a quantum leap into something that's totally different and doesn't fully exist right now. It probably will at some point. But it's, you know, buying cryptos to me is a lot different than, you know, even paying up for an Amazon or an Apple or something like that. You, which you, I think you understand the dynamics of the markets and the valuations yeah. a little bit more. So. Yeah. And John, just lastly here, um, you know, we, we always talk uh, about the, you know, big macro picture, the global dynamics, obviously a lot of focus on the U.S. markets and some, of course, on the Canadian markets as well that we've talked about today in terms of liking the pipelines as well as the banks. Um, but I think a lot of our viewers probably are Canadians. So just to kind of step back and put everything in perspective, um, you're comfortable with the Canadian market, the economy, the outlook, it sounds like. So what, what kind of if that's true, like what kind of weighting would you put towards Canada versus the United States? Yeah, I think in our portfolios right now, we're, you know, typical balance portfolio with maybe, you know, 65% stocks. I'd say right now, probably 50 of that is Canadian and maybe 15 US, because it, it has more tilt towards Canada. When I look at it, I looked at a chart the other day, sort of the comparison, the S&P versus TX, actually, you know, you do those charts and it moves in longer wave cycles. And it looks to me a little like it did back in 2000. And when you when you look at that period, you realize for the next 10 years, basically, uh, the TSX outfor outperformed the S&P 500. It's just the valuations are more attractive here in so many industries. We don't necessarily have the technology overweight here. that distorts it a little bit. There are, like I said, the areas like the telecom, the pipelines, energy, industrial, the financials have underperformed. I think we'll play some catch up. I think it all plays pretty well to you know where we are. It's funny, the currency seems to be acting a little bit better too. Maybe it's telling you a little bit that our, our obviously fiscal position is, you know, stretched like everybody else, but certainly not stretched any worse. So, I, you know, I think we're in pretty good position here and I think we've underperformed for a number of years. So there is some catch up. So I, I think the idea, you know, money has been migrating out of Canada for a number of years. You know, institutions have pulled out, major funds have pulled out of the fossil fuels and all of that. It's a bit of a dearth of capital. And I think where there is a sort of a shortage of capital, that's opportunities. And I think for investors, I think there's you need opportunities in a lot of these names right now. So it, to me, it makes sense to you know, have some Canadian exposure for sure. Okay, John, we will leave it there. It was great seeing you and speaking with you and getting your thoughts again. So thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. It's always a pleasure. Thank you.